Carrying huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. During my competitive days and now, health is a real priority for me. That's why for the last two years, I've been drinking AG1 every day. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel energized and focused to take on the day. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also simple. With AG1, I know I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support with vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from whole foods. I like to think of it as nutritional insurance. I know I'm covering my nutritional basis right from the start of the day. The thought of taking multiple supplements, mixing them and matching pills and powders, etc. sounds exhausting and such a mission. But just one daily scoop of AG1 covers my nutrient gaps and supports my mental and physical health without a lot of hassle. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1 and that's why I've partnered with it. Plus, I started taking AG1 long before this partnership even came about. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 plus K2. Also, five free AG1 travel packs, which are awesome. These are great. I take them on the road. With your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle. That's drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle to check it out. The links will be in the show notes as well. We will get to the episode, I promise, but this is exciting news I have to share it with you. The podcast is going visual. We are on YouTube. So if you enjoy watching podcasts, make sure you go to Moving the Needle Podcast on YouTube. So search it on your YouTube. You'll find it. Hit that subscribe button and then watch some of the clips if you don't mind. Maybe leave some comment. Let's get some engagement because the more we get the YouTube out there, the more I can get awesome guests. And that's probably the biggest thank you you can do for me right now. Let's build up that YouTube. So share it with some friends. Check those clips. Leave us some comments. And I uh, appreciate that, man. Let's get to the episode. Welcome back, sports fans. Moving the Needle podcast. I've got a good friend and someone that's done quite the podcast tour and the media tour for someone that I remember wasn't quite into the media, into the tech, but he's got his own microphone. He's on uh, some race review podcasts, which is awesome. And uh, it's none other than, wait, before I intro him, I just want to set the stage. He is a podium World Cup rider. He's been on a podium. He's been fourth at World Champs. He's been second at Junior World. So this is for people that are living under a rock in the downhill world. And obviously... He's getting a lot a lot of press now with his own team that he's launched and the own bike that he's building. But I don't want to take away from what Nico did as a junior and into the elite ranks and then had a lot of injuries. But welcome to the show, Nico. I hope I did your intro justice. Wow, that was an awesome intro. Thank you so much, dude. It's good to be on. Um, yeah, man, it's been a couple of years since those results came around. And normally now a lot of people, you know, you forget quickly in racing what what's happened a couple of years ago so um it's the new stuff that that i'm talking about more than that but uh thank you for all the kind words my pleasure man it's an honor i think you're a, an awesome dude and you had a great career still still can throw it down at a world cup stage you know with with the pace that's going on so i don't want 
people to forget about that. Or maybe they're new to it and they're like, wow, this guy that races downhill, that's really smart. Like I'm listening to these podcasts and I don't know half of what you're talking about. We're very honest with the engineering side when you're talking about steel versus chromoly versus aluminium. And, and I, I know you've learned a lot, but I, I think that gives it a lot of credibility that I want to also shed light on. You know, you're not just a fanatic of the testing. You you got the bike down the hill. You um, you were a junior that were, for lack of a better term, you were wet behind the ears as well. You didn't know a lot. So to me, it's almost quite ironic that you're going to be teaching me stuff about bike setup and all these things because when we were on a team, I'm not sure you knew your front brake from your rear brake at that stage. <laughs> That's for sure, dude. Um, yeah, I can remember the first test camp I was on with you and Jozo. We went to Phoenix, Arizona to do some testing with Fox. And I didn't care at all, really, how the bike felt. I was just excited to ride it. And I think a lot of riders can relate. Like when you start out, there, there's not that huge knowledge base. So, yeah, as you said, like everything that I've learned about my bike, about doing the testing, about um, the development side has all been just by doing it and picking up little bits and pieces here and there. Um, I've gotten the chance to ride for some awesome teams through my career. And with each one, I've learned a little bit more. So, um, yeah, I guess the knowledge base I have, and I'm, and I'm still learning a lot through, through my own project. Now I've learned so much that's really accelerated things kind of jumping in the deep end. Um, but yeah, dude, it's all just stuff that I've learned. How about mountain bike racer, just like you. And, um, a lot of people listen to this podcast, like, I'm just a bike rider and I've learned all the stuff just by, by doing it. It's pretty similar to, to racing downhill. There's not a real textbook to it. You know, I know engineers learn certain basics and, and now the bike industry has come on a lot. Like it's a really amazing industry, but to learn downhill, you have to go and do it, right? You have to go and test, you have to go and ride, you have to time yourself, which we both know, and you do that. But to develop a bike seems kind of the same, like jump in the deep end and you just have to get reps. Um, and you went through a lot of iterations of this bike. I, I guess there is a lot of similarities uh, to downhill versus maybe developing a bike. Yeah, 100%. I mean, what I love about downhill racing is you can take so many different approaches. It's, it's not like a lot of endurance sports um, that – the training you need to do or the prep is, is very clear. And, um, there's not that many different ways to do it, but with downhill, there's so many different body types, different styles of riding, different styles of training, um, to, to try to get the fastest, you know, four minute run, three minute run down a mountain. And with bike development, it's kind of similar. Like you can take, different approaches, different things work better for different people. There's no one way that works. I think you've gotten a chance to ride a lot of different bikes in your career and, um, that you can see even now there's different setups that, that are winning races. Like there's been six bikes that have won races this season. Um, so through it all, I guess I've learned like the things that I like and, um, just tried to find some correlations. Uh, there, there's never like one thing that's the end all be all, but, um, yeah, I've, I've gotten a chance to test and develop with, um, a, a little bit with Trek when I, when I was on that team, I was on that team for five years. Um, I've gotten a chance to test some new things with them. Um, 
And then when I went to Scott, the, the second team I raced for was really the, the big learning experience. Um, the engineers there and like Ben Walker really explained so much to me about how my feeling on the bike, um, like what that related to in numbers so that I could understand when they're designing the bike, what the different things do to it, and then trying to develop it, what we can do to give the feel that I'm looking for. So that I learned so much. And then, um, I, I had the chance to race for YT, but the bike was pretty set. I didn't really get to do much testing there. And then going to intense, it was like, almost similar to what I'm doing now where Jeff Steber was welding all the bikes himself. Um, there was pretty much the ability to get new prototypes whenever we needed to. He had a lot of the tools to do it in house. So it wasn't, um, waiting as, as long a lead times to get things. Um, and, and through that, I, I learned a ton and kind of sparked my interest to want to try it myself after seeing what, what they were able to do with intense. Um, and then, and yeah, now I've started my frameworks project, which is just, I, I designed my own bike. Um, I didn't know much in the beginning. I knew based on all the bikes I already rode, what I thought I wanted and, um, made a prototype, rode it. It was better than I expected. Um, maybe good enough to make me want to keep trying and then, uh, have refined that over the past two years and, and still am doing some testing. And I feel like. I got through a process where, uh, I, I think I've had like 10 prototype frames now, 10 revisions of it. And, um, yeah, the bike rips now. So it's been a fun process. What was the first, um, sort of, okay. So you've got this first idea in your head of a bike and maybe I'm skipping forward. Cause I do want to understand when you were getting into wanting to design your own bike or this process with intense, cause that seems like when it sparked idea, or maybe there were frustrations with not being able to give your feedback. Did you have a notepad and numbers and some drawings that you try to put together? Was it just all in your head? Like, how did you communicate that first prototype to the guy that built it for you? So I guess over the years, I've kind of learned some things like what leverage ratio of a shock feels like, um, giving feedback to engineers on teams that I've raced for. Sometimes we were able to get a custom link or something special for the bike to tune it specific to us. So I guess I had a notepad and, and just some understanding of it to when the engineers would show us some graphs on the bike, I could tell them what I thought I wanted or based on the feel that I was riding, what if I wanted a little more sensitivity or a little more support. Um, how, how that would look in a, in a graph and then learning some more about some other of the characteristics of the bike, like under braking, what the, the graph would look like, um, what bikes that I liked, like per, they, they quantify that in anti-rise. So like what, what kind of braking feelings I would like in bikes. Um, <clears throat> so I had a little bit of a notebook and, and an understanding of it. And I downloaded this program called linkage. It's, it's, there's like a $30 version. It's, it's pretty simple. It's a 2d computer program basically has a bike suspension points laid out on an X and Y axis, and you can move them around, um, like drag them and move them, or you can type them in and, um, 
you can even upload pictures like side profiles of bikes and put in like a known measurement and it'll show you proportionally where all the other ones are um the other pivot points are and it's not very accurate that way but if you want to design your own bike it's accurate enough to give you an idea of of how it if it's possible in real life and in 2d it gives you all the outputs based on where your pivots are and it's really easy and simple to use so i started playing with that just as like we were, we were developing some bikes with intents. Uh, we wanted to give them good feedback. Um, so I started playing around with the linkage program and learned enough about it that I had some designs of my own that, you know, I was just playing with. And sometimes maybe you design a crazy bike that's not really possible to make, like all the links actually wouldn't fit together in real life, or it might be really hard to actually make. And then I designed some pretty simple bikes, some bikes that were not um, VPP, which is what Intense was using at the time. And that kind of led me to like some of the designs that I made. And at first it w I had no intention of trying to make my own bike. I was just interested in playing with the program. And I don't know, some guys go and play Xbox at night and I was playing with linkage and enjoying the process of learning how to, uh, understand better the engineering side of the bike. So that led me to design some frames that, as I said, I never intended to make, but as I saw the process of Jeff making the bikes at Intense and um, us testing and giving feedback, I kind of started to like the idea of making one of my bikes. And yeah, in the beginning, I, I didn't really necessarily want to make it into my own project even. I just thought maybe I could get one of these things made. Um, if I make it and it's totally shit, then I don't have to tell me, but like I could ride it at home. And even if somebody found out, I'd be like, Oh yeah, I, I made my own bike just to see what it was like. Like it wasn't something that was going to prevent me from riding for another team or getting a sponsor. But yeah, in the beginning, I just wanted to see what it would be like. like I was just genuinely interested in it. How crazy is that? <clears throat> Excuse me. How crazy is that you go from just playing with something in your spare time and if you fast forward now, you could have never predicted you'd have the two riders on your team and literally you guys could could win a World Cup in both elite and juniors. I mean, just if you just look at that, I mean, that must trip you out. Yeah, um, man, I'm super fortunate the way that things worked out to be able to have these two riders on my team. The past two years, I did all the racing, all the development, the sponsor for the team. Like I was pretty lucky to start this in 2022 sponsorships were flowing a little more in the industry. Um, and I was able to get enough support from component sponsors to go and do all the world cups, have a mechanic, um, be able to pay for all the travel and everything and not sleep in a van at every race. So I was able to go and show my bike on the world stage, my brother came with me and made some videos about the project, which I thought turned out pretty good for us doing them ourselves. And, um, that kind of got my project off the ground and, and got enough momentum to keep doing the refinements. There was more people than I expected to be interested in some of the nerdy bike talk. I'd explained all my decisions on how I made the bike and, um, what I was going to change, what worked, what didn't. And, 
I didn't think there would be that many people out there that were really interested in, in those tech details, but a lot more than I expected. And that just gained enough momentum to keep going with the project. Through it all, I felt a little bit overwhelmed, like I was doing a lot myself, um, trying to get the sponsors for the team, um, designing the bike, doing all the logistics. And I just felt like I wasn't able to show everything the bike was capable of. It was also like the tail end of my career. And um, I just felt like my bike was really good, but maybe I couldn't ride it as fast as it could possibly go. And uh, I'd always had the idea of like, man, if I could just take everything that I've done on my side and all the knowledge that I have, and then pair that with somebody who's at the top of their game, man, the sky would be the limit. So it worked out really well with Asa. He's one of the fastest up and coming juniors. He's like one of the top prospects coming into the season this year. And I met him um, in 2022 at the US Open at the end of the season. He he raced elite as 15 year old and he got third place and he was one step ahead of me on the podium. So I was super impressed. I met him earlier that week and had been watching some of his results earlier that year. And I asked him if he wanted to stay around and test ride the bike the next day. And he loved the idea. So he and his dad came back the next day. I think it, it like poured rain overnight and he first run race run pace. Just, I followed him down the track and he was, didn't even ask if he should uh, check the track or if we we're going to stop or he just got in the gate and did a race run. And I followed him. I think he did eight race runs that day, uh, race run pace. And um, yeah, he, he loved the bike and stuck with it this year. I gave him some frames and uh, he raced this season on my frames. And then I ended up getting injured in March. I uh, broke my pelvis, which is a pretty big injury took me almost all season to recover. I didn't get back on the bike until the last two World Cups, which were five months later. Um, and through that, I gave all the support that I had generated for myself to Asa. I tried to help him as much as I could. He had a couple of his own sponsors that were not the same as mine, but I paid for his trip to go to Crankworks Europe. Um, my mechanic helped him over there, took him to Schladming to ride, um, and yeah, any races he did this year, I tried to just help him as much as I could. And he did amazing. Like he won almost every race he entered any of the pro races, even on the, in, in the U S he was able to race with the world cup dudes. And he had won a few of them, got second at the U S open, um, just behind Dakota who went on to get third the next weekend at the world cup. So he had shown, a, he's shown a lot of promise and he's like the perfect guy to, represent my brand and I'm really excited to have him. And then, um, it worked out that I wasn't really looking for another rider, but I'd been talking with Angel Suarez over the course of the season, more so about his setup. Um, I, I was teammates with him in 2017 and 18, and he was struggling a little bit with setup on his bike this year. He was developing a new bike with Uno and just as I did, like you go through some growing pains, anything, anytime you have a new bike, that's a, you're the first one riding it and it's a new prototype. So I've been chatting with him. I've stayed in touch with him ever since I was teammates with him. And, um, I even sent him a spring at one point. Um, and 
as the season went on, it looked like his team wasn't going to be able to continue. So I talked to him about maybe just giving him, supplying him with some frames. Didn't really have much money. Like my brother and I are doing all the framework stuff ourselves, and we just launched some bikes for sale, but it's um, only enough to just cover the first run of production. So it's not like we're a big company. It's just two of us doing this. And uh, anyway, I told him that I could give him as many frames as he needed, but I didn't have any budget for him. And if he, if that would help doing his own program, I'd love to work with him. And he came back asking like, maybe could I ride on your team? And I was like, man, that would be awesome. So pulled some things together and managed to find a way to get Angel on the team. He's such a talented rider. He's had a couple of podiums through his career and uh, over the past few years. And it's some seasons where he struggled a little bit too, but so far he's been on my bike. He's been absolutely flying. So man, next year is going to be super exciting. I'm really happy with the team that we have. Dude, I feel like a proud uh, big brother um, from the days of those team camps and and you as a junior, which is pretty normal. You're inexperienced in Europe to now owning a team. You've got these riders. You've put a lot of work in. I think I don't think people can ever understand the work it takes in to be number one a professional racer, then build your own team. That's that's a lot. There's only a few people can handle that. And then to develop a bike and try hurtle down a hill. I mean, it's such a distraction. I mean, anytime we got a new part and it was always a catch-22, are we going to develop it at a World Cup? Well, if you really need to and there's something wrong with the bike, you're forced to. But I think that's a distraction. Um, and you can speak more to that. Like for someone to develop a bike at a race, you're not really always thinking about the lines and pushing yourself, trying to get the bike up to speed. Like it's no wonder you can't perform at your level. Um, and maybe that for Angel as well, to still be developing a bike into a World Cup season, you maybe don't have uh, sort of, I just don't think you're on a fair playing field compared to the top boys. Yeah, totally. I mean, and, and that's something that I've kind of learned over the years, uh, especially with Intense, like we were doing that. And it was, I would say, way more out of my control than now all of it was my own doing. So... I kind of put myself into that spot. Um, but I learned how to, I guess, turn your brain off when you needed to, or at least try. It's the subconscious you can never control. But um, yeah, it's tough when you're thinking about anything else but racing. Like really the testing should all be done in advance and you should show up to, to race, not to set up your bike, not to practice. Um, but through that, I was able to develop my bike so much faster. Like you, you learn so much while racing that you can never simulate in testing. Um, you can never get 200 bikes on a line on a test day that you can in a race day. So there's, there's so much there that is really valuable. And I was able to accelerate my development process. Like the date of the race never changes. So your deadline for when you need the bike ready, you have to meet it and you have to rush to get that done. So the first year I was able to go through so so much rapid development developing my bike in racing and i think that got me to a really good spot to where now i can give the bike to these guys that i've already done two years of this on i can say the bike's reliable and the bike works well and they can take that and just focus on riding they don't have to angel especially like he's been down this path before and he can trust me i think he does trust me and um he has a similar setup to me 
and know that like all the work that I did, even with shock tunes to develop the tune that works best on the bike, he can take that and he's going to be, you know, 98% there. Like the window that he has to work with is totally rideable. So I think that's a huge advantage to those guys that, um, I'm able to provide them, which is pretty unique for other teams out there. I, I 100% agree. I, funny enough, was one of my proposals the year I stepped away from racing was, why don't I still race, but the res- results are not a priority, but I can test more, and if there's something we need to do at a World Cup, I'll do that, then I can help with lines and mentor. So you've basically doing that now, which I think is the way to do it. Like you say, you can progress a bike so much quicker than doing it away from the races, thinking it might work under race conditions or race speed, but maybe not. So, um, yeah, I don't want to do it now. Uh, I don't want to go that speed, I don't think. I still like the testing part, but maybe under race circumstances between the tape, maybe my time has definitely come and gone. So I really like that. I think it's a huge, huge advantage. If, if you say, like, and I've heard you speak about it, you've got the bike to as competitive or more competitive place, right? And if you find something new or you're working on it, you're only going to bring it to them if you're very sure and it's the right time. Otherwise, they're going to stay on the current bike, right? Yeah, and that's something that's that's always hard as as a racer. Like when you have a new thing, you, you, you gravitate towards it and it's hard to separate it being new from it being better. So that's something that I can sort out for them. I have, um, I, kn- I know all the details about it, which is, sometimes too much to know when you're racing you don't need all that in your head but i can take my ego out of it the result doesn't matter as much for me i love to race like preparing to race is fun and i feel good i'm in a better spot for it but i can go out there and with the priority of really figuring stuff out for the guys and then they can their their results are the priority yeah, no, I think you've you've summed it up so well because I was thinking even at a World Cup, not even testing new parts, but suspension setup, tire pressures, there comes a point where enough is enough uh, and you just need to run what you run, you know, apart from a Minar, which clearly loves to just puzzle. But I think it's a distraction for him and it's just something he can deal with. A lot of information process what he needs. But I think a lot of risers get sucked in um and they have too much and it's overwhelming and then you're not focusing on your speed on the track whether your setup's perfect or not would you agree yeah and i I think a lot of it is like this new age of riders there's like a desire to puzzle and i don't know if it's greg has led that but sometimes it can be way more distracting than you can get out of it by going down the route of of trying to test things yourself to not have all the resources, not have real things to try, not have um, someone to help you with that testing. If the, the worst thing you can have is wrong information. And if you run a test yourself, that's not necessarily completely controlled of all variables. And you can almost get yourself more confused and, and also spend your time on something that maybe, you know, you could have just gone and rode and trained and focused on yourself. Um, it, it can be tough with that. And I think for Greg, I want to say it, it helps him to mentally feel like he's solved the problem right before the race, gets him in a good spot, 
and then he can go out and and have this feeling like he just got the bike dialed at the last minute and now he's ready to go and i don't know sometimes i look at his setup and i'm like dude we could tell you what setup you're gonna race on the first day of practice and you can just go out there and ride but he doesn't want to do that he likes to go through the puzzling he likes to find the solution and be ready for race and i think that just works for him and i think because he's such a he's the goat he's the best he's won the most world cups a lot of the kids look up to him and they want to do a similar process and maybe without all the resources or without the the state of mind that Craig has to solve that problem and then be ready for the race. So, so I think it can be a dangerous fine line. Um, if, if you're, if you don't have the resources that Loic does, like you see so many people putting on the, the data acquisition system. So you can buy a system from motion instruments or BYB now that's not that expensive, set it up on your bike. And unless you know what you're looking at, that is so much information coming in and you can't really run it yourself and set up the bike. It takes so much time. There's, you know, five different sensors on the bike that you need to all be calibrated and reading correctly and then know the information that you're looking at. And so many people get them and throw them on the bike and think like, oh, it'll give me the perfect setup. And it can actually lead you down a worse road than if you just, you know, put your bike in a good working window and focus on riding it the best you can. So yeah, there's a lot there. And I hope that through all that I've learned, I can filter that out and just give the guys that working window that they can just focus on riding. I think it can be a huge advantage. So what do you think has been the most surprising thing that you figured out by designing your own bike? Is it certain ideas you had on geometry certain ideas you had on leverage ratios where like what surprised you the most with what you've got now as a race race winning bike uh, potentially I, I would say the biggest surprise was that um th the devil is in the details like balancing everything there's no one point that helps you more than others obviously you have to prioritize your design because every I say every dial you turn up turns another one down. Um, if you're looking at, like when I look at the bike, I look at the leverage ratio, the axle path, the forces under braking, the forces under acceleration, which is tied to pedal kick. And then how can you package all that? And then the geometry of the bike. And sometimes it's tough because you can get things on your computer screen that you can't quantify in real life, like adding idler pulleys, adding complexity to the frame, adding links and bearings, they can work well on your computer model. But in real life, adding the more things you add to the bike, the more risk there is um, that something could go wrong, the more things you have to live with. So I found that I want to make the bike as simple as possible and compromise that with the best performance that I can. So I found that balancing every one of those aspects, there's not one that really may, stands out. You have to try to find the best combination of them all paired with the geometry that downhill bike geometry, you can't really go too far out of the range of what's normal or else you'll, yeah, there's like, we've kind of got to a spot with head angles, BB heights, um, 
where, where things are pretty settled down now. Um, but yeah, just trying to find that balance of everything. Um, and I, I had thought in the beginning that I was going to design my bike. Like I was ordering off of a menu, like I was ordering a sandwich, like I want this, 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 I don't want that on it. And you could just like, I'd look at engineers to drawings in the past or designs and said like, Oh, we'll just keep everything the same, but make the axle path this. It's like, well, now I know that everything that you move changes something else. And within the package that you have, you can't actually do that at all changes other things. So, um, being able to do it myself, I was able to figure that out and like learn that if I moved this, it changed that and get the best balance for the whole bike. So I guess, yeah, my biggest surprise was that, um, it's the small details. It's like, you know, you can go for a crazy design and I've in, in my first when I first started, I made two prototypes. I made a high pivot and I made a standard pivot bike to decide which route I wanted to go. And I noticed that I didn't get enough of the gains out of the high pivot to want to go add that complexity to my bike. So I, I carried on with an O-chain and a standard pivot height bike. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like the simple things like pairing your leverage ratio with the the tune in your shock like the forces of the frame matched with the forces of the damping is like such a small fine detail that can make such a difference um, without needing to go for a crazy design with a ton of links and bearings that nobody has seen before so that's kind of my perspective on it i also don't think you need so much built-in adjustability in a downhill bike like across most of the tracks i find that the optimal setup may not be as beneficial to the rider as the setup that they're familiar with so if the bike is something that they're used to riding um and it's predictable predictability is the biggest thing with it all um then they're going to have a better they're going to race better on that than being able to optimize the bike every single weekend. So there's a lot of designs that have built in all these links so that you can change things and that you can tune the bike infinitely. But uh, I find that the more stuff you add to it, it's just more moving pieces in the puzzle and the simpler the bike can be, the, the better it can work. And you don't really need all that adjustability to me, it kind of shows you don't know what you need, what you want. If you, if you have all this adjustment to have a bike that's designed to work within the window that you need for racing is, um, it shows that you know what you're looking for and that's the race bike you need for a world cup season. Yeah. But wouldn't you say like a track Peter Maritzburg versus Val Nord, would you, what if a rider comes to you and say, I'm battling with X, Y, Z, would you say, okay, well, then we might have to change the head angle, put the different cups in to get him comfortable. Like, are you are you going that way, you know, when there's like these extremes of tracks on the World Cup circuit? I can understand day-to-day -day and tracks are kind of similar and one's a little bit more rougher, a little bit faster. When you've got those very extremes, I mean, you guys, you'd be open to that? Or you say, I, I still think if you know what your bike's going to do, you, your riding will adapt to it. Yeah, I think there's definitely some minor changes, um, for sure. Like we, with, within my bike, you can change the reach 
the head angle with cups in the headset. We actually have like the a really big lower cup so that you can change the reach up to nine millimeters without adding any stack height. Because when you add stack, it can change um, it can change the geometry of the whole bike. So that's a that's a useful adjustment. Um, and then really just suspension is is a is such a big thing. Like we work pretty closely with Fox, and they've helped us develop some tunes for my bike that um, we can use the tunes we have and even some clicker adjustments to dial in the bike for each track within that window. Um, but what I meant by that was like not the need for a lot of links, um, idler pulleys with different mounts. Like I, I don't think that that's really something that's going to be that usable. Maybe in the development process, you have more options to try, but I think once you figure out what you're comfortable with, you don't really need all of that. And also to your point, like we, we don't really have <clears throat> tracks like Peter Maritzburg anymore. It seems like all the tracks on the circuit have gone to like a tighter, I don't know, they're, they're, they're a lot more similar. Um, like when I was racing and you were racing, there was so many different tracks and the difference between Peter Maritzburg and Val de Sol was huge. And, and if you look at the schedule now, there isn't that big of a, of a gap between the, the two most different tracks on the circuit. Yeah, that's a fair point. And, and back to when we were on Trek, you know, the first year that bike was going to, I forget if Canberra was the first year, but we were kind of wanting an all-round bike. And then we looked at the schedule the next year, and that's when we started looking at the leverage ratio. And for lack of a better term, we wanted a more bigger hit bike. Um, and we actually did speak to them about developing it, or Justin as well, about trying to give us a little bit more of like a big hit bike than something that would work on all tracks because um, we knew we were going to Val de Sol and a lot of these steeper tracks. But yeah, I guess it has kind of normalized a little bit um, on, on, on bikes. But I mean, I totally agree with you. I think some of the most of the top racers in the world, once they've done their preseason testing and they've got a setup, they basically leave the head angle very similar and they tweak, tweak suspension. Um, you'll be surprised how little some of them play with their bikes, even the suspension clickers here and there. Yeah, it, it just depends on the rider. Some some riders tweak a lot. Some are, are happy to set their bike up. Like, can you remember Brendan would get his setup in the in the off season and he would run it all all year long. So uh, yeah, it just depends which which riders it is. I think like Loic is a great example. He's probably has the most resources of anyone and has the most ability to tune his bike, and he's not changing i mean he, he's not very open about it but it appears as though it's suspension that is is the difference every weekend and i think within the window that you can change your suspension that's enough if you have a good setup to start with to be to, to have a bike that's capable of winning each race yeah if you think about changing the other aspects it's changing your ride position like your stock standard ride position that you subconsciously have built the the feel of your bike you know how it is having ridden for a month versus two three races in i mean it's just night and day how comfortable you feel on a bike so i think that will throw you off if you tweak that sort of setup too much yeah i i totally agree i feel like the the benefit of the comfort and just like when you ride one bike for so long, you get so in tune with it. And the benefit of being in tuned like that is 
it just outweighs any any positives from tweaking your bike each weekend in my opinion yeah definitely dude so this acer kid he's been on your radar for probably a lot longer than mine i mean the hype seems pretty real i know going to a world cup is different tracks are different pressure's going to be there he's got a great mentor with you Martin Whiteley's going to be there now he's managing your team i mean the hype seems pretty real like this kid could be the next big thing i think so i mean just looking at his riding and his his like mental attitude towards racing those two things is he's just different in that respect like i think he really does have what it takes um he's technically so good on a bike the way that he looks at a track is um like he's looking at it at a different speed than i am and he's just sound when it comes to his his like race attitude so it seems like when we race here in the u.s the tracks that we have are not that technical compared to world cup tracks i think anybody would say that like regional level or national level tracks in any country aren't quite on the par of a world cup track they shouldn't be and with those tracks that he's been able to race he's he's up there with some of the fastest dudes. We had a race preseason where Aaron and Luca were, and a lot of the other U S guys, um, pinky and Dooley, um, Dante, like guys that all race the world cups came to in April to, to prepare for the season. And Asa won that race by two seconds over Aaron, which was really impressive. And, um, the, the track's just not as technical as a world cup track. It seems like whenever it gets, technical whenever those sections come out is where he really excels at least like me following him like i can do a training day with him and in some of the sections that aren't so hard like the u.s open track is pretty mellow and that this year end of the season he got second at that race he um he was up at all the splits even ahead of dakota and then dakota just laid the power down at the end and ended up beating him by a second and then went on the next weekend to, to get third at the World Cup at Snowshoe. Um, and he was ahead of Greg Minar and Jackson and a lot of top dudes in that race. Um, but even in practice there, like I can follow him through most of the sections, but whenever it gets really technical is where like his technique and, and his balance on the bike really comes, comes into play. So I think as we get to World Cup tracks, he'll only advance more um and yeah dude i i really think he's he's got what it takes and he's such a nice humble kid too which is so important um he's super professional like when we did a couple of test days together he um i told him like all right we got to leave at 7 30 tomorrow to get there to the track by 8 30 to meet those guys and every morning he was up at breakfast table at six thirty with his knee pads and his helmet in his hand and ready to go ride. So he's like super dialed and um, yeah, I'm really excited for the season. See what he can do in the world cup. Yeah. I mean, I think I even text Greg a little bit about it and just gave him a little bit of shit, but Greg was singing his praises. Like you have to, it just didn't make sense to me. How does a kid that young can't be as strong, can't be, I mean, I know you said he comes from Durango. Like, who is the kid? 
how is this happening at that age? Like I understand sports in general. Everyone's getting younger. Everyone's got more access to information. Everyone's obviously riding their bike more, but he doesn't have that much time to have developed this much skill. Like, it, <laughs> you know, one thing that a course is easy or not, and Quinn's not pushing as hard as he would at a World Cup or whatever it may be, but it just doesn't make sense in my head that he can go that quick this early. Yeah, I'd say what he, it seems like he came on the scene kind of out of nowhere, but he is only 16. So it does, it makes sense that a lot of people haven't heard of him. He hasn't grown up like Jackson in Whistler on Instagram where everybody knew him since he was six years old. Um, he's from Durango, Colorado, which I think a big reason why he's so good on the bike is the trails there are pretty gnarly and he has a ton of riding to train on out his back door um he just absolutely loves riding his bike like if he could do 20 practice runs in a session he would and when you when you go ride that much at 9,000 feet of elevation like you get naturally pretty strong i think he's just strong from all the riding that he does um and yeah he he just loves it so much that he pushes himself and even in a practice session, like at the U S open, we had an hour practice and he was going to try to do four runs. He was going to be at the top as soon as it started so that he could get down and get back up to do four practice runs. And I was like, dude, everybody you're racing against is doing two practice runs. Uh, maybe you're doing too much. And he's like, nah, I want to, I'll track so fun. I want to try to do four. So in a lot of ways, like that's how he got so good is just by the desire to do that. Um, and as he gets older and matures, he'll he'll learn exactly, you know, not to spend that much energy, maybe. Good luck. It sounds like you're going to be trying to rein him in for the next year here. So I don't know how, how on earth you're going to do that. A little bit different to some of your uh, races and history as a junior. Definitely excelled, but um, maybe it's a good segue. I mean, what happened with the stem in Chattel? Like maybe set the scene. I forget if you forgot to tighten it or just broke in a crash and we forced you to ride home holding it in one hand. Like <laughs> you seem like, did I guess, did we bully you or not? I'm a little bit worried that we bullied you um, as a junior. No, I'd say I got good treatment. Like I am who I am because you guys, like you got to get around people that are older and, and more professional and, when they give you a hard time, that's what teaches you lessons for life. So I'd say the year before you guys, um, that was 2010, my first year as a junior with you. But the year before, I traveled around with Kyle Strait all season. And he definitely treated me a little bit tougher than you guys did. Uh, but yeah, jumping into that story, when we, we I'd stayed with you between the races in, in Morzine and Chattel for couple weeks um maybe a month between the world cups and we were riding over in the port de sole i very well could have not tightened the stem um but we were we were all the way over in i want to say la croze like going over towards champry and i broke the stem on my dh bike i don't think it was in a crash i think i just either came loose and broke or i broke it and we were three valleys over from where we started and where we were staying and it was afternoon so 
I didn't really have, I had to hike my bike down the lifts or across to get back and I didn't make it in time. So I ended up having to stay the night in Chattel um, and meet you guys the next day in Morzine. So that was that was quite an experience, like go on a downhill Wait, ride. What was the trick condo still in Chattel? I think so. Back then they were doing like the Trek launch and they um, like our team wasn't there anymore, but they were doing like dealer days at, in Chattel. So we were there a few weeks prior as the team, as part of the dealer thing. And they were still around hosting people and came crawling back with a broken bike and said, I couldn't make it home that night and ended up <laughs> staying over there with those guys. Um, but one of the, the funny stories. Whilst in there with a Trek factory downhill bike and, and, a, and a race race, and you're like, yeah, I'm part of the fact Trek team, blah, blah, blah. Um, can I just crash on your couch? Cause I've ripped my stem off. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's how it went down. And I, yeah, found you guys the next day. Um, one of the things I was going to say about that trip that was pretty funny. I remember being so stressed was, uh, we, that was the year before worlds in Champry. So they were like doing some work on the Champry world cup track, getting it ready. And we went over there a couple of times while we were staying in Port de Soleil to ride, just took the lifts over kind of, maybe that's where we were even going that day. I broke the stem. Um, but I remember it one day, like the track was supposed to be closed, but a lot of people were riding it. Um, and we went over and did some runs on it. And I remember some guy like yelled at me in, in French at the lift station. And I had no idea what he said. And I remember giving him like the wank gesture and, um, like, I thought you guys would think it was funny. And then that night you and Justin came to dinner and told me that, uh, they had called Martin and they were going to disqualify the whole team from the next world cup because of that. And obviously it was a story that, uh, you guys made up. Um, like, I don't even think the guy at the lift station knew that we rode the track or it had anything to do with the track. It was just, I didn't even know what he said. It was in French. And you had me going all night, just stressing that I got the whole team disqualified from the next race for, for this move in the lift station. And, uh, luckily you, you told me before bed that it, it wasn't real because I remember being silent. Like I, I couldn't even eat my dinner because I was so stressed. That was funny. Oh, now I remember that so well because you were texting and you you mentioned the gesture and the DQ and I'm like, oh, that sounds like something I'd definitely prank you with. But now I remember it so well and, and, and we got you hook, line and sinker. Like I love a good prank, but I think if it gets a bit malicious and I can see you're literally not going to sleep the whole night. And and to be honest, the context, like Mon Whiteley um, – as many people know how many successful teams he's ridden. And I don't think I've ever said to him, like, it's quite an intimidating person because of his history and the credibility he's had. So he's just a youngster, you know, you want to do well. You're on this big team and and, and he's running it. Um, so you don't really want to get in trouble. 
So, dude, I remember that so well. And, I mean, the context to this whole thing is um, we loved having you around. You're just with people like Brendan and his mates from England. Like, it's quite a, what's the word, an expedited um, education of, of living abroad and being in Morzine and, and riding downhill bikes, skill-wise as well as of these sort of, uh, so we say, street smarts. <laughs> yeah dude i think it's perfect like you learn way more from being around your peers getting shit for the dumb things you do um that then you can ever learn just reading a book or in school so that was i i appreciate all that <laughs> i learned a lot from you guys yeah those are fun 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 memories because I guess it's just like anyone. I had it from Nathan Rennie, Jared Graves when I went over for my first year. I was older than you, luckily. So it would have been even gnarlier for you at that age. But we've all sort of been there and then you're a little bit older. So you help the junior, but you give him a lot of shit along the way. But really, we really enjoyed it. And you've mentioned before, like someone like Asa is keeping you young. Someone like you kept me young with how excited you are to ride. Like I remember those days being padded up at breakfast. That's not happening anymore. It's like I'm putting my pads on last minute, you know, when are we going riding? Um, so that's that's super cool, like just thinking back to those times. But what you do have to throw sort of some context to is this broken arm of yours and how it was bent. Like this is before a lot of people's the time of social media and stuff. I don't know if we could dig up some pics back in the day, but you broke this arm, came back too early, I guess, and then bent it again. Yeah. Um, man, I, I broke my radius, which is the inside bone in your forearm. And the doctor told me that I should just let it heal. Looking back, it should have probably been reset. Like it definitely had, wasn't aligned very well. Um, and it's still, dude, it still is like that. I can send you some x-rays from it. I think I still have. Um, but it, when it healed, it also, all the calcium around the broken bone made it look even worse. There's like, it, it tried to fill the gap that the bone was offset and it looked like a golf ball in my forearm. Um, like Win Masters had a similar, similar one. Yes, um, yes. But yeah, it, it, I broke that arm two weeks before the first world cup, my first year as a junior and coming into the season, I had a lot of promise. Um, Troy and I were the two guys coming in that season and I, I, I was bigger and stronger than Troy. So I could beat him at some preseason races like sea otter, who knows what would have happened at the world cup. I think the first one was Maribor, but I had to miss most of the season and, um, was kind of like coming back, uh, midway through the year. And, um, it was actually that Champry world cup that I crashed and re-injured it. Um, after I, you know, let it heal and it looked bent and, uh, dude, it still is, um, to this day kind of healed with that deformation, but it doesn't really give me too much trouble. I actually broke the same arm a few years later in 2016. So like six years after that, and they had to put a plate on it this time. And the doctor told me that the surgery took so much longer because he had to customize the plate. Like I went in for like a pretty quick emergency surgery. It wasn't a planned surgery. I crashed at a race and broke both the radius and ulna. 
and they um, they put a plate on each one, but the plate for the radius was like normally there's like plates for bones that are for people of a certain size. Like there's a few stock options to choose from, I guess. And with this huge um, like lump or, or bend in my forearm, the doctor like in the middle of the surgery was having to like customize the shape of this um, the, the plate that he was putting on my arm. So now it's uh it's like screwed into that bad design, but uh, yeah, it still is the way it is, and I'm living with it. So you're not going to take that plate out? You think you're going <clears> to <throat> have it for a while? Yeah, I, I was, dude. I, I was telling someone the other day who asked me about getting plates out. I have I have a lot in my body. I could probably save a lot of weight if I took all the hardware that I have in out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've got a few in my arm, a few in my leg, um, my hip now. Um, yeah, some small screws here and there, like a wrist or something, but. Man, I've had a, a bunch of injuries through my career. Like even, like I said, starting from the very beginning, two weeks before the first ever World Cup break in my arm. Um, and it's something that I try not to play up too much. Like I don't want the injuries to define me. I want to, you know, if I'm healed up, put them in the past and and move on. But um, it's a big reason why I want to try to get these other guys on my bike and, and racing it. Um, last year, breaking my pelvis was the biggest injury I've ever had. And it's still, it's been nine months now and it still gives me trouble. So it's improving. Um, and I can, like I raced the last two world cups, but it's something where I don't think my baseline is quite where it was in the past. So, um, yeah, man, injuries are the worst part of the sport. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you've, I, I don't think you should downplay them. They factually are something that can stop you from performing at your best mentally and physically. Like what keeps you coming back? Cause you have had quite a riddled career with, with injuries and some, some pretty harsh ones as well. Yeah. I'd say, man, like the feeling you get when you have a good race, like you can totally relate to this is, is worth a hundred bad ones like the feeling of accomplishment you get from that is addicting and you want to get back there and that drives you to train come back out of the hole from an injury um it's it's like that feeling is super motivating as a racer so that's always driven me to get back and setting a goal for myself like when i this time when i broke my pelvis i i was in the hospital for a whole week um, which was terrible. Just like if you went to the hospital healthy for a week, it would be terrible. And, uh, and then I was on, the, on off my feet and laying in a bed for three months. Um, and through all that, I had this goal that I was going to come back at the end of the season, try to make it back to race the snowshoe world cup. And without that, I don't think I like, it, it would be hard to stay positive. And, um, like the first couple sessions of physical therapy are, they're pretty bad. Like they hurt, like you gotta. And then when you get back on your feet, like your fitness is so low. And it's like, sometimes when you're a pro athlete, it's like when you're on top of everything, you feel great. And it's somewhat easier to keep that maintained. But when you got to go back to base level, it's like you knew what it was before. Now you're back here and it's, it can be so hard to, to dig yourself out. So the goal of having a race, um, 
the feeling of accomplishing your goal in that race is like what kept me coming back to try to do that again. That's bigger than the result, right? Um, I think that's something in life. Like you need to put goals in place or enter a race or enter a half marathon. I want to get fit. Yeah, that's fine. But willpower is, I don't know, man. I, I don't know if it exists. I think once you've put a goal and you make a habit and you're forced to be accountable to something, I think that's where the fulfillment comes. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean achieving the the result in the race like a race that you get a great result versus one where um especially in a downhill race you you make a mistake you crash you're so, something doesn't come together like you still put in all that work and you're still so much better for it that the results kind of just the icing on the cake but through all the training you better yourself so much that um you, you just feel better you you went through this process of growing as a person, um, to try to prepare for it. And yeah, I think that's a lot of that fulfillment that you said. I probably miss that the most, like focusing on this one thing, you know, and every day is like, it's just clear. I'm just going to do whatever's in the training program and I'm going to get better at this one thing, you know, and, and maybe, you know, now with running this team, designing a bike, there's so many things you have to focus on and, there's not a lot of like instant feedback that you're improving. Yeah. The, the real world's tough. Um, man, it's the days of just all I have to do it today. It's no joke, eh? <laughs> and we're not well, even in the real world. We're not yeah. even in the real world. <laughs> That's true. We're, we're, uh, we're in our own world, I would say. But uh, man, when you're a pro rider, like you have to do a 90 minute gym and a two and a half hour bike ride today. And that's like all you have to do for the whole day is to get that done, uh, rest in between and do them the best you can. It's like, man, those were the days I, I wish I'd appreciated it more. And I don't think you do until you, you, you go through that and, and now are doing something else or have other responsibilities, but being young and having, all you have to do is that is is something special for sure. Yeah, it's crazy. And you've spoken about it a bit. And we both, I'm dealing with technology, as you can hear on the podcast. I hope this is a sweet sound in your ears, listeners. Um, setting up lights and cameras and software and and all that. But um, like back in the day, you didn't even have social media, right? So you had even less to focus on as a racer. Now teams want you posting and you got to keep sponsors happy i mean what's it been like because yeah you've done a bit of a podcast tour i know you were in california you've done some um it's a super interesting story but they want you to tell it right so you've got to be the one available to the media and and dealing with all that yeah um it's something that when when you were racing and when i started racing was it, it, I think Instagram was even around then or social media. It wasn't part of any contract you had. Um, and, and now it's just the landscape so different. I, I really like doing the podcasts. I've never had to actually produce a podcast. I've, I've gone on several podcasts and it's really nice for me because I'll jump on the phone with you for an hour and a half and we'll chat and then I'll hang up and go go about my day. And you've got to do all the hard work of producing that into a show and posting it and 
getting it out to the viewers. Um, but more so with social media, it's like an opportunity for riders to add another layer of value, um, more than just for racers, more than just for race results. So yeah, the, the value proposition to sponsors is totally different now. When I started doing the frameworks project, I didn't pitch a single race result in any of my sponsors, in any of my proposals. It was all about the video series that I was going to create, explaining my project, um, providing them with photos and videos that they can use on their social media, in their website, in their online ads. Um, and the, the value of that, those digital assets is a new thing that for, for brands, they can quantify that maybe a little bit more with um, their correlation to sales. So it's, it's just a new thing. Um, in the past, you know, it was the job of the team or the brand to take our race result and make that into a story that they were able to tell about their product to sell it. And now as a rider, we have to do all of that as well. Like they, they want us to tell the story of their product, you know, carry the good word about whatever parts we're using or products that we're using of theirs. And, um, I can see how it is a value. It's just your job as a pro athlete is totally different now than it was before this, this started. Let's take a quick break from this episode to hear from one of our awesome sponsors. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Roses are red, violets are blue. Trim your balls and your date will thank us too. What's up, fellas? Valentine's Day is knocking and Manscaped is a remedy for what the love doctor ordered. His prescription, you ask? The all-new Performance Package 5.0 Ultra, designed to elevate your grooming game and shine like the heartthrob you are. We all want to shave time off our race runs, but how about shaving the parts that really matter? Let's talk about the hero of Valentine's Day, the Lawn Mower 5.0 Ultra. That is the only trimmer your family jewels will ever need. Picture this. You're shredding down the gnarliest trails, feeling the wind in your hair, and then it hits you. You need to tame the beast below the belt. That's where Manscaped comes in. With a cutting edge technology and precision engineering, you can now groom with confidence, just like you conquer those downhill descents. And folks, this electric trimmer features skin safe technology guarding your V-Day treasure against any grooming mishaps. Seriously, I've been testing this bad boy out, not one nick down there. It's waterproof, so you can take it from the trail to the shower without missing a beat. A constant motor is like the turbo boost for your nether region, ensuring you'll be flying down those trails in record time. But hey, that's not everything the Love Doctor ordered. This package also features the Weed Whacker 2.0 Nose Hair Trimmer, Manscaped Liquid Formulations, and two free goodies, the Shed Travel Bag and Boxes 2.0, because comfort is king for you shredders. Join the 10 million worldwide who trust Manscaped with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com to snag 20% off and free shipping with the code MOVINGTHENEEDLE. That's right, get 20% off and free shipping with the code MOVINGTHENEEDLE at manscaped.com because your grooming upgrades await, ready to charm your Valentine's date. Your jewels will thank you. Now let's get back to the show. How crazy is that? You didn't pitch a single result, makes sense. And without the internet, this project of yours might not have got off the ground. At least you wouldn't have had as many sponsors. Imagine pitching it before there was a thing called YouTube. <laughs> 
yeah, I could have, I could have posted it on ride monkey back in the day, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Like it, <laughs> it gives you, um, it just gives you more power to do things yourself. Um, I, I think it's cool. Like you can create your own channel. You don't need to rely on uh, TV production or um, you don't have to rely on somebody else to to create the platform to view this stuff. You can do a lot of it yourself and that gives you the chance to do it in a way that, that you want. But with that comes the responsibility to actually do it. So it's a, it's a double-edged thing. Um, it would have been nice to race back in the, in the heyday when, uh, salaries were really high in the early two thousands and there was no need for any self-promotion. People did it for you, but, um, times change and you gotta grow with the times. Yeah. But the catch 22 is if you got that, uh, you better have been savvy with your money or got some serious results because once that ended, there wasn't really many options to stay in the industry. There's a few now that run teams um, like Will Longden and Nigel Page. And obviously I'm forgetting many of them. But what I mean is like they couldn't transition into ambassador or like you, you've got this YouTube channel, you grow it big enough, you could start doing other things with the channel, right? You kind of own your own asset there. And you've like got this value you can offer any sponsor, you know? So it's super interesting. So it's like, it is this double-edged sword because some days it's, you know, being on social media to me sometimes has quite a negative effect on my personality and, and psyche, but I'm also thankful because it's part of what I do or because the sponsors need a video on YouTube uh, promoting a new bike. That's why I still get to live in my, in this bubble, I think, our world, this bicycle bubble, you know, it's not the real world. And I'm really, 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 really thankful. And I think it's with any job. People say, oh, you got this really cool job. doesn't mean it's an easy job. It comes with its own uh, sort of pros and cons. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you've done an amazing job at it, Needles, um, with this podcast and all the sponsors that you were able to carry after your career. Um, and, and it shows like you put in that hard work to create this brand for yourself that carries on further than your race career can. Um and that's so cool that you put in the work and um, and, it, and it starts to pay off. You can show sponsors a new value. Um, and like you said, a lot of guys in the past, would their, their career would be over. Like really good riders um, back in the day. Um, their last race was pretty much the last time they were getting paid for anything bike-related. So now there's just more to it in the industry. And um, if you put in the work... If you look at these things as tools, um, tools or platforms to grow your or, or share the message that you want to share, whatever your personal brand is, um, you just have easier access to people back in the day. You know, you'd go to a event, um, maybe talk to some people in the parking lot, in the pits, and now you can do it on social media and instantly access a whole lot more people who can hear your message. So as long as you keep perspective of that and just try to use it to, to, you know, positively share who you are, I think it's a great tool. Yeah. Are you kind of humbled and surprised how many people have resonated with your story and, and what you're sharing 
from the technical side of building these bikes to racing them yeah 100 percent. i mean i i think i said earlier like i was surprised how many people were interested in some of the tech details that i would share about my bike i made a couple of videos where i just sat down with the frame and said here's exactly what i did here's why i thought i wanted to do it here's how it worked when i wrote it this was good this was bad we cracked this frame because of this and then we we're going to try this next time to make it stronger and some of it goes in pretty in depth with um like some engineering terms and i really didn't think that that many people would be that interested in it i thought like to the average person you're going to watch this and get bored within the first minute but so many more people were actually so stoked on seeing that behind the scenes process of developing the bike that, that, that I, than I expected. So, um, 100%, I was totally humbled by it. It was, it was really cool to see. Yeah. Part of me thinks it's because it's so authentic. Um, you're not selling some marketing spiel, right? It's kind of what you're interested, how you go about it. And you've talked about it. Like we crack frames. Well, I'm pretty sure a lot of manufacturers developing bikes have cracked frames away from the races. And that's where the cracks happen because they want to improve it. And you were just sort of very vulnerable and open about your process. And I think people resonate with that. You know, there's a level of authentic personality coming out as well as vulnerability. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing all the time, but I'm trying to build this bike to go down a, a World Cup downhill. Yeah, totally. I I just wanted to share the, the process. Um, like, if somebody was doing this, I would really like to watch it. And that's what I thought every time when I tried to make a video you, you don't have to be that creative when you just be honest you just tell them exactly what happened and it's a lot of times the the failures that build trust as well and um i didn't have a brand i didn't have bikes for sale i didn't ever intend to sell bikes now this year we have launched a few for sale just because so many people have asked if they could get a hold of one of the frames that we were making um, but that's never really like the driving factor. The driving factor was just to try to go through the process of making my own bike and share with everyone what the challenges were. I didn't have all the resources of a big brand or all the years of experience. Um, I'd say like I knew pretty well how I wanted the bike to ride, which got me off to a, a bike that rode well from the beginning. But from a manufacturing side, there's just so much to it, so much more that I know now that I never really was interested in, in learning about. That wasn't like, I wanted to make the bike ride well, not figure out how to make it efficient to produce and, um, be like a manufacturing engineer. Um, but I've learned so much through that and sharing it and being open has, uh, I, I think created a lot of trust from all the followers. As you said, like I break, this many frames from every brand that I tested for in the past, we just weren't able to share them and sharing it. Um, yeah, just showed people the good and the bad. I think a lot of times on social media, you, you only see the best side of people and, um, for sure, like we showed everything about the project. And I think that was, it was just more interesting to see the whole thing than, um, than only, the finished product with no compromises as every other brand will tell you. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, summed it up pretty damn perfectly. I, I must say, um, 
yeah, I can't speak for what brand and where and when, but I mean, we've we've both broken some some bikes in our day. Um, but you kind of got this corporate sort of uh, what's the word obligation not to share it, right? And it's this modern day world of only sharing your highlights. That's Instagram in a nutshell. It's all about highlights and comparing to the highlights. Um, so that's like a whole, whole nother, nother tangent, I guess. So it's really refreshing, Nico. I must say, like, it's really awesome to see. I mean, I've been following the journey. We met up in Spain, like, quickly, and I see at the races. And it's a little bit more superficial. But now that I'm digging into it, like, it's such a cool story. Like, why wouldn't you want to follow along? It's also almost an underdog story, you know? This guy from East Coast of America decides he's going to try build his own bike from technically some experience from racing, but not an engineering background at all. And then he's going to go race it against the best racers in the world. Yeah, it sounds pretty cool when you put it like that. Um, honestly, dude, I'm just honored that I can do it, that um, I've been in a position in my career to, to learn all this stuff. And um, yeah, at a stage now where... I was able to do this project and share it with everyone. Um, I absolutely love it. Like I'm deeply passionate about it and um, yeah, honored that I could do it. So um, I don't know if you saw the Musk on Rogan one, but even Elon Musk was saying, dude, the designing of a car and prototyping a car, that's the easy part. Try production, try a production line. Obviously this is like at crazy scale and it's Elon Musk and it's Tesla. But you mentioned like, oh my goodness, trying to get something into production and the timing of certain parts and when everything comes together, like, and you're just doing bespoke builds, right? Um, what's, what's been the biggest challenge there now taking these things to production and selling them? Yeah, dude, I, I heard that quote from, from Musk and I can totally agree. Like as somebody who knows what they want out of the bike, um, designing one that works well is actually pretty easy and, and making one prototype is now um, like even the first one rode so darn good. And now that I um, learned everything that I have along the way, I could make one prototype frame that was awesome to ride. Um, you just invest more in some tooling. You make a few parts that are slightly more expensive that make the bike easier to build one of. Um, and if it's a one-off, if it's a few hundred dollars more per piece, it's not really a big deal. You're making one prototype. You just want it to be accurate. But when you want to make a whole production run of things that are all within a tight tolerance, all easy to make, because if they're easy to make, then they're easy to make perfect. Uh, you don't want a whole lot of complexity into the person who's, a, who's building your bike's hands. Um, then it's easier for those bikes to be perfect. And the engineering that goes into the production, as well as the coordination of all the pieces that you need to make, even just a frame, not a complete bike, um, man, that is a whole nother thing. And like I've, I've learned over these past few months through manufacturing, we offered a pre-sale of our frames. Uh, I think we sold 45 of them. And then we, so we, we made 50. We'll have some extras for, for warranties in case there's any issues. And coordinating that that batch of frames to get made, um, I even built in a bit of a buffer, and I'm really glad I did because so many little things along the way are not as simple as I expected them to be. I thought you would 
Um, like when we build a frame, we have tubes, we have CNC parts, we have the rear ends for my bikes are carbon fiber. So they're made in a factory that probably makes, uh, most of the bikes that you've ridden before, um, and coordinating all those pieces to get made at the same time and get done. I really thought was going to be agreeing on the price, agreeing on the lead time, and then just send me the shipping label when it's ready to send. But in between there, there's so much communication, um, to keep the project on track, to know that the tolerances are what you expected. Um, just questions about producing the things, um, issues along the way. Like we ordered the tubes for all, all of our frames that get shipped to a laser cut tubing vendor who cuts all the miters, um, with a laser cut machine. So they're all absolutely perfect. And then Frank, the welder who welds all of our frames can weld those bikes in without having to do hardly any fabrication. So on the way from the tubing supplier to the laser cut place, the box of the crate of tubes was broken. Uh, one of them was completely damaged. The rest of them were, um, bouncing around in the box and got surface damage to them, like stuff that we don't want to sell people. So then we had to take those tubes, send them back, get refunded. They didn't want to sell them to us again because they thought we were too picky. I didn't think we were too picky. I thought the box got destroyed in shipping. Um, so we had to find a new vendor to supply us those tubes to then get shipped to the laser cut place. Um, finally those arrive for Frank to weld. A lot of the CNC parts we ordered are delayed. Um, places just don't hold their deadlines. Um, the vendor that makes our carbon fiber rear ends told us that they had some other orders come in and they weren't going to be able to make our or ship our pieces until after the Chinese new year, which is like the first half of February. And we promised these frames for the customers before the end of February so that they could race in March in North America. And, uh, we had to go back to them. Luckily, um, I had somebody who was kind of like a middleman between manufacturing and Asia who's helped me that was able to explain to them in their language, like why we really need these in February and they need to ship them before the Chinese new year and finally got that back on track. But just, it seemed like there was with every step along the way, these hurdles that were very stressful to me. Um, and, and as I said, I really thought it was going to be, Hey, I need these within like your proposed lead time. Um, here's my deposit. I'll, I'll send the rest of the money when they're ready to ship. Um, just yeah. Contact me when that date comes and that would be the end of it. But with manufacturing, I think anybody who's involved with manufacturing would probably listen to this and say, yeah, that's exactly how it works. Um, it was just something that I didn't really expect and a whole nother part of the puzzle. Holy shit, I've got a headache listening to that and I didn't have to deal with it. <laughs> Absolute nightmare. That is another reason if you love biking and you're good at it, you're passionate, stick to racing because that's some real world stuff right there. Like it, you, it, it should be more simple than you think, but it's not. Do you imagine these global bike brands and the, the COVID, like this COVID situation and the stress of getting, that's just a frame, 50 of them. Imagine you got all these different models and all these different 
manufacturing lines and then you've got the components that need to be manufactured and you're ordering those for OEM. I mean, it's no wonder it was a dog show during COVID. And now we're seeing these after effects and now we're seeing what you spoke about of where the industry's at and these race teams folding. Yeah, dude, I couldn't, I wouldn't want to do a full bike. Uh, maybe someday, but just the amount of components that need to come together to build a full bike. I can only imagine the lead times of getting everything at the same time to then offer that bike for sale. And if, if one piece is missing, you can't sell them the bike. Um, and I think, yeah, during COVID, there was just such a demand. Obviously, everybody thought that was going to continue and continue to place big orders. And the manufacturing of a bike, especially on a larger scale with some of the tooling that they need, um, there's such a lead time that by the time the demand went down, the bikes were still ordered and coming three months later or, or even longer. And then when they arrived uh, in the warehouses, the demand was already gone. So now they're sitting on all this product. Man, that would be even more stressful. If I had gone through all this to make 100 frames and only sold half of them and nobody wanted the other ones, then I would be really stressed. So I, I didn't take any risk. I only made as many as people pre-ordered to start with. Um, but man, I could see how doing this with a much larger scale and then in the end having to figure out how to sell them, that would be, that would be stressful. No, insane. And, it, and if I understand it correctly, it's just you and your brother, like, and you haven't taken investment on, it's just you guys basically bootstrapping the production sale of these bikes and obviously your team, obviously running the team as a business as well. It's just you yep. two. Yep. So, um, my brother, he's, he wears a lot of different hats. He's made all of our videos. He's not considered himself a videographer. We just um, thought it'd be easier to buy a camera and, and learn how to use it than to hire a videographer to do all this. Like that, that work is really expensive. And um, we thought in the same spirit of, of a lot of this stuff, like let's just do it ourselves. And uh, he also does all of the finance stuff for frameworks he he helps a lot with coordinating some of these um lead times for parts that we need um does a lot of the communication built the website all the sales so the two of us together do everything and the way i was able to run my race team is off of the sponsors for the components so all of our co-sponsors that you see us using are they're funding the racing um the development of the bike I paid for myself out of like savings that I had. Luckily it was like in the beginning, a low enough bar of entry that I could afford it. Like I think my first prototype frame was like five grand, like nothing so crazy that it wasn't like, if it never worked out, it wouldn't be, uh, I, I've wasted five grand on dumber things before. So, um, but then you, you get a taste and you're like, oh, we can like improve what? the bike. <laughs> I don't know how many dirt bikes or whatever you buy through your career, but, um, you get a taste of like the bike can be better and then, okay, let's make another prototype. Let's make another prototype. And then you get, you know, 10 prototypes down the line and you start to spend a significant amount of money. So I did all the prototyping out of like savings that I've had. And, um, and then now that we're selling the bikes in production, uh, when we took the pre-orders, we took a 50% deposit and that covered all the manufacturing. 
And then when we ship the bikes, they pay the second 50%. So it was a way that we were able to do it without any loans, giving up any part of the company. Um, and hopefully like in selling this first batch, we are able to grow it. And then eventually, um, like the goal is not to have a huge company. The goal is to just continue to do cool stuff like this. And I can't just keep, uh, paying for prototypes myself um, now that I'm not actually racing for a team anymore, have my own income stream. Um, so if we can start to sell the frames, um, it's a win-win because so many people watch our project, are interested in asking for them, and it gives us some money to keep developing and keep growing the project and making more bikes and hopefully one day invest into the team as well to make that even bigger. Um, like a lot of race teams they, they would they wouldn't have a third of the budget without their title frame sponsor so um we're kind of growing that like frameworks is frameworks racing through all the hard work we're putting in and then one day we'll um have a small bike company that can invest some money back into the team as well so really it's just the idea is to keep our project moving forward and keep growing it through offering the bikes for sale and um, you've spoken about it is give or take 400 grand to put this frameworks race team at some world or well, some at all the world cups you've got these three riders you being one of them and you've just mentioned something super interesting like without a frame sponsor and as you said that's easily a third could be sometimes 50 percent of a team budget and and i mean that's technically inclusive of salaries the 400 grand because i know it's probably 400 to 500 to more to have a two-man team at the World Cups, excluding salaries. So you guys are having to get more money from these sponsors as well as make it go further. Yeah, I'd say that's one thing I've learned pretty well how to do is make the dollar go further. Um, depending on like what your perspective is, that can sound like a lot of money to just do a season of World Cup racing or if you really know the ins and outs of how these teams work it's a super tight budget. Um, like I've talked with Joe Bowman and he runs his team on a lot tighter of a budget, but it's, it's just what he has to work with. And to give the riders the resources they need, you, you really can't skip on some things. Um, so yeah, I would say a lot of the bigger brands like specialized without specialized gravity without specialized would have <laughs> a lot smaller budget. I would say more than 50% um, of their budget. And this is just guessing. But um, I think in the position that I'm in this year, like we were able to get Angel for uh, probably less than what his average value would be. Um, he actually had a three-year deal to race for the team he was racing for. And I've said a few times, Uno, but really Uno was a sponsor of the team. I don't want it to look bad for Uno or, or Cesar or those guys. Like it's not their fault that they didn't pull out. It wasn't their idea to quit. It was the team that he was riding for was sponsored by Uno. It was called Uno racing, but, um, it, it wasn't them that pulled the plug, but it, he, he had a three-year contract with that team and getting towards the end of this season, it was decided as, as a lot of teams, um, racing is one of the first things that gets cut, um, that they were going to pull back. And, um, because he had a contract, they paid him. He was supposed to be paid for the next two years to race for their team. They compensated him in some way. So 
um, because he was able to get some income there, we didn't have to pay him as much as he would be worth allowing us to get a better rider than we could afford. Um, and then I've been, as far as the team budget goes, like I hope to generate some income from selling the frames. I don't have myself and my salary as a line item on the budget. So if you take those two things out of it, Logan as well, he's been doing a lot of the coordination for this stuff. He's not taking a salary from the team budget. Um, we can make the money go a lot further and I've learned to be creative with it over the past few years. Um, it's interesting on some of the big teams, like they'll spend so much like rider salaries will be so high, but then staff will be working out there for next to nothing. Like some of the mechanics some of the guys that are holding it all together are, are on a really low day rate. Um, and I feel like on my team, we've like, everybody gets paid fairly. Everybody gets compensated to be there, but we don't have any outstanding salaries that are super huge. And we, I try to be pretty smart to make the budget go as far as it can. Dude, thanks for sharing that. I think it's so, so interesting because everyone just sees the races on the broadcast or at the races. No one knows what goes into all these things. And uh, you guys are seriously bootstrapping this thing and taking a huge risk um, and adding value with this story. And now with uh, Angel, like it just is what it is. You've uh, fallen into something really great there. And I think it's a silver lining for both of you because – he has sort of had so much potential and he's had epic results, but there hasn't been this like consistency for a number of years because there's been injuries. And then, you know, he's had to change teams or teams have folded. So I'm really excited for this to sort of land and have you there to support him with a bike he, he needs, obviously. Um, you know, where do you think this could go for him? I mean, just this past season, he got sixth at World Champs. He had a sixth place finish in one of the World Cups. He qualified at the first race, third or second even, I can't remember. But he's shown speed throughout his whole career. He's got a few World Cup podiums. So I think, you know, on a good day, he has the, the potential to, to win or be on the podium this year with uh, a good crew around him. Um, it's really just the mindset. I hope that, like, I can, as I said, provide all the pieces so that he can focus on getting himself in the right mindset and training and uh and take advantage of all of that. So I think we're both in agreement. Like he signed just for this season based on the current circumstances. Um, in any case, like the goal is to get the best results we can, whether the results help my team to get some more budget to keep him on again the next year, or he is able to use this as a platform to get a couple podiums, maybe a win and get onto an, another great team. Like we're both in agreement on, on where we stand coming into the season. And regardless of what happens, the goal is to get the best results we can together. That's a super interesting scenario. Um, and I like it. I, I think it bodes well. Um, if he's motivated, which it, it sounds like he is, what, what a great place to be. You know, like you've got the support. This could be a stepping stone. Or who knows, you really like it and you perform, then the, hopefully some sponsors will sort of commit. And it's quite full circle with you've been teammates with Angel. You've worked with Barton Whiteley on and off over many years. Um, and now it's full circle that he's going to come in and actually, he's been helping you in the background, which you've mentioned, so it's not a secret. Um, and he's going to be then taking over the management style. But you've also joked and said, it's not going to be so cushy as the uh, Honda racing back in the day or trick like he's gonna have to get 
his hands even not to say he's not a hard worker and if he's listening to this he knows how much respect i've got for the work he puts in but you said he might be cooking some meals and he might be doing it the the frameworks way yeah 100 percent um i i'd kind of laid out some things that i needed help with leading into the season and um he came back and said well that's actually like looks like a, a job description for the team manager more than what I'm just normally doing at home. Um, would you be open to me coming to the races and, and full on like jumping into this? And I was like, man, it would be an honor, honestly, to have Martin Whiteley as my team manager. Like I've got a really interesting lineup of riders this year, but really Martin is, is one of the biggest assets that we have. If, if you look at the teams that he's run, um, and the success that he's had on every one of those teams from global racing, Honda, G cross track world racing, and the YT mob, they've won world cup overalls in elite men and several, you know, work more than several, like a whole lot of world cup wins. So I, I really wanted to do actually like a stats on, cause you have stats on riders or podiums or wins, but it'd be cool to do a stat on Martin as a team manager how much success that he's had and then to have a guy like that Dude, he's on got his... those just ask them for it he's the stack guy I, I know that's i wanted to do it as like a I, I didn't want to ask him to do a post about himself but uh for sure he's the stack guy uh, but yeah dude to have a guy like that coming on as my team <laughs> manager's huge asset yeah no, that's awesome like i said i'm poking fun here and there but i think it's really cool it's full circle uh, it helps you then just focus on what you need to help, and that's riding, developing, supporting the guys like on that side, especially with Asa and Angel. From what you've said, it's you've obviously been on this awesome podcast tour, which I think is great. Love it. I think why not? Why just go on one? I mean, hopefully the conversation's a little different to, to some of the other ones. And uh, the more we dig into it, I'm I can't wait to to follow along. That's for sure. Um, what about some of these other teammates you've had? Like, who are you going to draw from giving this mentorship on? I mean, you've you've raced with, geez, so many awesome teammates, and, and Gwyn being one of them, Justin Leo. Obviously, me, you can't, you're not going to say in front of me. Like, I'm probably one of your favorites, I would hope. Maybe not from a <laughs> mentor side, but I hope we had a bit of fun out there. But I mean, racing, uh, jokes aside, racing alongside Gwyn. Um, you know, arguably the greatest during that era, winning all those World Cup overalls. To witness that must have been something special. Yeah. I mean, I was, I shared a room with Aaron on the night that he won his first World Cup and his 20th World Cup. So we, we were together for such a long time as teammates. And to see him go through that process and grow as a rider and watch him even create his own teams and how he was able to manage his relationship with sponsors and be a part of three of the different teams that he, he was winning on was, um, such a huge experience for me. So yeah, obviously pulling a lot from Aaron and the way that he's done it in the beginning, um, like Justin and, and you teaching me so much as a, as a junior, like thinking back to my mindset as a junior, um, how, how I was perceiving the races and how you guys helped to shape me into the rider that I, that I became like 
looking at Asa and he's going into that same season now. And what are the things that he might be worried about or things that I can help him with and help to mentor him through. Um, and then with, with Angel, like just having been on teams with him and know um, kind of where his head's at, like he's pretty particular about his bike setup. I've been there in the past with certain certain times in my career and have kind of come through that. Like, I feel like in a lot of ways you need to go down the rabbit hole of complexity to really understand simplicity. You can't just be told that. Um, and I've gone through that to the point where I let a lot of the test riding or bike stuff or setup things, uh, overwhelm me. And I can see how that's happened to him in the past and, and his perspective on the bike and try to take some of the things that I've learned to help him get through that quicker and, um, not be overwhelmed by those things. So yeah, just over the years, so many awesome teammates that I've had that I've learned so much from Brendan with the social media stuff, seeing how well he's been able to do with, um, his sponsors, like through the second half of his career, elevating so much further than, um, racing alone. Uh, yeah, I've learned just a ton through through all of them and the, uh, the experiences that you have with with all the people along the way are what make it so i'm super grateful for that yeah it is a eh? it's the people you meet and these experiences like getting to do this business with your brother is super special i can relate there with businesses home and traveling the world with him and man we just couldn't really get many results going it was just ironically the two years of injuries and just breaking equipment but I wouldn't change it, right? I guess it makes your bond even stronger. So going into this year, maybe a little reflection on last year. What you know, there's been this new organization. You're probably a little distracted because you're trying to get this this bike and you had this injury, but general consensus, like going into this year, you think we're gonna see the semis? Uh, the racing was just so exciting, like so many different winners. I just I just loved it. It, it just spoke for itself, but what did the riders make of the semis? Do you think it's here this year? Yeah, man, the racing was so exciting last year. I think just just from that perspective, the amount of different winners there were, the it was they picked a great year to to jump in on that. If the racing wasn't exciting, they've been they'd have been getting a lot more grief than they than they are. Um, from the riders' side, nobody likes the semis. <laughs> yeah, fair uh, enough. They the the riders that. Not one. Maybe some do well in it and like riders that are consistent, um, they, they can perform in that situation, but I don't think anyone really likes it. It seems to me like the riders that, that are going to qualify through the semi to the final don't want to race twice. And the ones that are getting cut, they don't want to be cut out of the final. So in the past when it was, the same 30 riders that are shown on the broadcast, but 60 riders got to race that final. Everybody liked that. Nobody likes change. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's something different. I think a lot of the, they're up against it with trying to come in and, and change things up. Their goal is to make the broadcast as, um, as many people watch it, like get as, get as many views as they can. That's, that's really how this is successful in their eyes. So that's what they're motivated to do. I think they have a lot of work to do. I don't think the broadcast 
was better than Red Bull. I thought Red Bull had probably better camera work and more stats available on the screen. Um, I, I actually watched a lot of them as I was home injured and, uh, commentary aside, like you can never beat having Rob. I think you have a really unique perspective on that doing so much of it yourself, but, um, com- commentary aside, I just don't think that the broadcast was on the same level. And then dude, I had nothing to do. I was with a broken pelvis watching these races and watching all of the semis, all the finals, like it was exhausting. It was like seven hours of watching TV on a Saturday and to get the average person to watch all of that racing. I think it's, it's just too much. And it's not necessarily what downhill really is. You kind of forget which run was, which like thinking back on the race, like it's hard for the fan to remember what, what all happened. Um, and I think, yeah, just creating that all one run, getting rid of the semi is probably what we need to get back to. Um, but I don't think it's really going to happen this year. I think just from what I've heard, it takes a a longer time to get some of these rule changes through and they would have already had to been done if they were going to have them ready by now. So unfortunately I think we might be stuck with the semis again. Yeah. That's a super interesting take. And I was, and you summed it up, like what is downhill to you? Is it that iconic run that we can, cite quite a few of those runs your danny hart uh, you had a chainless run as well which obviously gwyn now has sort of overshadowed but you've had a chainless run at norway right and just these iconic sam heels like it's the one run you're not having to guess if it was in semis or finals um pros and cons to it all uh but it's really interesting to get your take because you got to sit at home a bit watch it forced to watch it um, but yeah, I mean, sum up downhill for you. What is downhill? What makes it so awesome? To me, I've always, as, as a athlete loved the balance of the technical side, the mechanical side and where you're competing is in nature. Like it, your obstacle is a rock that just happened to have been there for how many millions of years and the angle that it is in the dirt or a root growing out of a tree is like, that's the obstacle that you have to do all this training and technique and bike setup to try to conquer. And the landscape that we get to do these races, the terrain being different from track to track, um, it makes it so exciting to, and keeps it fresh that things are just not the same every time. Um, and, and pairing that kind of, uh, landscape that you're competing in with the ability to go like motorsports deep in bike setup and then train as a professional athlete to try to make your body as prepared as it can be to, to do these races is, is such a cool balance where there's not a lot of sports that can combine all of those different things together. And I, I love it for those reasons. Yeah. I mean, I just think done correctly with unlimited budget, you could have a Netflix series and, and I think catapult down or more mainstream. If you told more of the intricacies and how gnarly these athletes are and the one run format and how many variables they are and the weather and the different bike setup. I mean, I watch hours and hours of golf and, and I'm just addicted to it, but it's them just punting a little white ball around. I mean, the, just the sheer 
like craziness that athletes can be separated by split seconds over this three to five minute track on different bikes and different body types, um, changing conditions on the track a little bit, depending on, you know, if a guy was 15th last versus fifth last, you know, there's a little bit of subtle differences there. Yeah. I mean, I watched that Netflix thing on the Tour de France and it was done really well and I, I enjoyed watching it, but man, if, if it was that level of, of production into a similar thing about downhill racing, man, that would be so cool. And I, I would have to think that there would be way more people that were interested in that told correctly than, uh, than road bike racing, but that's, I'm obviously biased. I was about to say I'm biased and I would agree that if you had, and Clay Porter said it, like you need the communication, which I think we could solve. I think we could get enough communication and cameras. So you would have to throw a decent budget at it. But I, I never used to watch Twitter France for the longest time. After the Lance area and me as a kid, I used to love it. And then I was like, yeah. And then now after that show, I'm probably going to tune into the Twitter France more now because they've given me the heroes to follow the stories, the underdog. And dude, that's half of, why I did this podcast? Like I just talking to you, getting more of the story out there. This is why we root for these guys. And and I don't think, I just think there's a lot being left out on the table for athletes and the racing. Yeah. Especially in a sport where you compete with a helmet and goggles on, um, you, you don't really get to see their personalities or know who the guys are. And through like watching some of that longer form video and, and even listening to all the podcasts and stuff that you do, you you understand the people a lot better. And you can normally you, you can understand what makes them them, and you want to root for that. So I think yeah, it, it will continue to elevate our sport in that way. Well, Nico, unless there's something you still want to touch on, I mean, I think you've uh, you're a seasoned podcaster because you've uh, summed it up. We've got to know you better. I'm going to root for you more, even though I know you. And I think the listeners as well is something so cool to follow along. Yeah, man. Thanks so much. Um, no, I, I enjoyed the conversation. I can't think of anything that we, we might've missed. Um, I really love telling those old stories. We had such a good time that year and we were on track together. So yeah, dude, hope to see you at some more races soon. Yeah, likewise. And so uh, follow you on Instagram and then Frameworks team obviously has one. Anything else where you want to direct them to just, uh, yeah, shout out to the listeners now. Let them know where to follow you. Yeah, I mean, you can follow my own Instagram, Nico Malali, or on YouTube. And then um, Frameworks Racing has our, our own channel as well. And uh, yeah, follow the racing. You, you'll get to see acer racing the junior races on youtube and you'll get to see angel racing the elite races on um the warner brothers broadcast so follow our team there and yeah support the sport unreal well speaking of youtube if you were watching this on youtube we are also on youtube if you're listening on your audio platforms big favor head over to youtube go to moving the needle podcast hit that subscribe button uh, and we are doing some giveaways because uh, this has been super awesome and otherwise, I think the biggest thank you is leave us a review and share it with a friend. Uh, Nico, thanks to you, dude. That was super, super fun. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot for having me, Needles. It was a pleasure. Roses are red, violets are blue.
Trim your balls and your date will thank us too. What's up, fellas? Valentine's Day is knocking and Manscaped is a remedy for what the love doctor ordered. His prescription, you ask? The all-new Performance Package 5.0 Ultra, designed to elevate your grooming game and shine like the heartthrob you are. We all want to shave time off our race runs, but how about shaving the parts that really matter? Let's talk about the hero of Valentine's Day, the Lawn Mower 5.0 Ultra. That is the only trimmer your family jewels will ever need. Picture this. You're shredding down the gnarliest trails, feeling the wind in your hair, and then it hits you. You need to tame the beast below the belt. That's where Manscaped comes in. With a cutting-edge technology and precision engineering, you can now groom with confidence, just like you conquer those downhill descents. And folks, this electric trimmer features skin-safe technology guarding your V-Day treasure against any grooming mishaps. Seriously, I've been testing this bad boy out not one nick down there. It's waterproof, so you can take it from the trail to the shower without missing a beat. A constant motor is like the turbo boost for your nether region, ensuring you'll be flying down those trails in record time. But hey, that's not everything the Love Doctor ordered. This package also features the Weed Whacker 2.0 Nose Hair Trimmer, Manscaped Liquid Formulations, and two free goodies, the Shed Travel Bag and Boxes 2.0, because comfort is king for all you shredders. Join the 10 million worldwide who trust Manscaped with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com to snag 20% off and free shipping with the code MOVINGTHENEEDLE. That's right, get 20% off and free shipping with the code MOVINGTHENEEDLE at manscaped.com because your grooming upgrades awaits, ready to charm your Valentine's date. Your jewels will thank you. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. During my competitive days and now, health is a real priority for me. That's why for the last two years, I've been drinking AG1 every day. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day every day, and it makes me feel energized and focused to take on the day. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also simple. With AG1, I know I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support with vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from whole foods. I like to think of it as nutritional insurance. I know I'm covering my nutritional basis right from the start of the day. The thought of taking multiple supplements, mixing them, and matching pills and powders, etc., Sounds exhausting and such a mission. But just one daily scoop of AG1 covers my nutrient gaps and supports my mental and physical health without a lot of hassle. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1 and that's why I partnered with it. Plus, I started taking AG1 long before this partnership even came about. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 plus K2. Also, Five free AG1 travel packs, which are awesome. These are great. I take them on the road. With your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle. That's drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle to check it out. The links will be in the show notes as well.